0: So remember, just I just wanted to go back and just think about where we were a few weeks ago because it's been a while since we've been in this, and so we're still focusing on the year 841. I'm gonna remind you that in just a minute as well. But at about somewhere around 841, we start getting the first of the writing prophets come along, and this is uh, where the first two. We think again, it's very difficult with some of the early writing prophets to nail down the years. Some people will put Obadiah and Joel much later, some people will put them right here, and it's not really a matter of one's belief in the Bible or anything like that 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 puts them in one place or another. It's really just um, the evidence, and I think the evidence supports strongly Obadiah and Joel to be in 841 and be the first of the writing prophets. They could be later, and it's not a hill I'm going to die on, especially because it's not stated in the Bible when they wrote So, uh, we're making our best guess based on the scenarios that they bring up. But Obadiah and Joel are these first. What we're saying are the first two of the writing prophets that come along. Obadiah, remember, his concerns. um, Hang on one second. All right, his concern is with the nation of Edom, who they boasted about themselves. They were they were really proud of themselves and. they uh, did not render help to Judah uh, when Jerusalem was being pillaged. That's specifically called out in Obadiah. The reason that we put Obadiah, or we think Obadiah might be in 841, is because Jerusalem was pillaged right around that time period. A- and the Philistines were the ones that did it. So they moved into Jerusalem, they pillaged it. Now remember, just before that, Edom had kind of declared its independence from from. Uh, from the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom went over there to try to put them back under their thumb, and it seems like for that reason, when Jerusalem was pillaged, Edom just kind of stood back and said, well, we're not going to help you. But to the Lord, that was a big problem because Edom is the brother, quote-unquote, of the nation of Israel, you know, as, as Esau is the, is the brother of, of Israel, or of Jacob. And so they were supposed to render help, and so Obadiah comes in preaching a message against Edom because of their pride that they're going to be brought low. That was one of the last things that we talked about. And then obviously we dove deep into the book of Joel, where Joel spends a lot of time talking about severe plague and famine, uh, coming about by two possible, on two possible fronts. One, a literal plague and famine brought about by locusts that come in that devour all the crops, and then famine follows after that, where they don't, nobody has any food, and we see that actually in the book of First Kings, uh, of Second of Second Kings, where um, Elisha is trying to minister to the people, and there, and the and the king is confronted by two ladies who are uh, bat, have a dispute about whose son they're going to eat because of the famine, and so the king is already. Uh, in, sh- in just in in uh, grief stricken, you know, and and really exhausted, and 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 he's crying out to the Lord in repentance, and the Lord gives restoration. Also, the other enemy would be a northern enemy coming in, the Assyrian army coming in to invade, and that also happened right about this time. And so, it makes a really good setting, honestly, for the Book of Joel. That that it seems that Obadiah and Joel both fit into these. Time, this time period of the 840s quite nicely now with that in mind we're going to then go into the year 841 where we've got some transitioning transition beginning to happen some has already happened uh, namely that the king of judah has been deposed and we've we've already got another another king there but in the north we have a king by the name of joram so he is in 841 the son I have it up here. Hang on. There it is. In 841, Joram, the son of Ahab and Jezebel. So if you look back on your little uh, family tree here, you got Joram. Notice which son he is of Ahab and the female, Jezebel. Uh, He is the second child, okay? Remember Ahaziah, who was the first child of Ahab and Jezebel, he died fell through lattice work, and was injured and and ended up dying. Okay, notice over here on Judah's side, the one who is married to Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, is Jehoram. In the biblical text, when you read the ESV, you read any translation, both Jehoram of Judah and Joram of Israel can be called the same name. Sometimes it's Jehoram. Sometimes it's Joram. Sometimes the translations play nice and they keep them straight for you, and sometimes they don't. And you just have to figure it out which one's which. All right? Makes it really confusing. Well, what's going to make it even more confusing is that Athaliah and Jehoram name their kid Ahaziah, which is the brother of Athaliah, who's over on the Ahab Jezebel side. All right? Just to make things just. Really nice for you to read in the Bible. <laughs> and then sometimes it'll say he and he and he and he and use a bunch of pronouns and you've got to figure out which one they're talking about. So it's not without some difficulty. I hope, hopefully we can straighten some of that out tonight. But Joram, the son of Ahab and Jezebel, so this is in the north. He's the northern king, right? Is king in Israel. Jehoram, the king of Judah, he had recent, recently seen... Uh, some revolts from both Edom and Libna. He dies in 841. It seems like he dies pretty early in 841 because there's still a bunch of events that transpire in 841. And the result is his son Ahaziah begins reigning in Judah and he reigns for one year. So 841 is a really tumultuous year because 841, if you'll look back on your king list and the very back of your packet. You'll see that 841 there has Joram of the north and Jehoram both ending their reign in uh, Israel and Judah. Then Ahaziah having a reign that is only 841 and dying in 841. We're going to see that happen tonight. Okay? So 841 is a tumultuous year for the north and the south. All right? So just understand that. It's a a big year. And you'll notice over there on the left, under Joram, in 841, Jehu takes over, and he reigns for quite some time. Okay, Jehu is, remember, the one that was prophesied about way back in 1 Kings. Remember, God tells Elijah, you're going to anoint uh, Elisha as a prophet to be your successor, and then you're also going to anoint Jehu to take over and kill all of Ahab's dynasty, take them off the throne. Well, that, that didn't happen just yet, and we're going to talk more about that in just a second. But basically what's happening here, obviously, is the apostasy of the northern kingdom of Israel um, had then also reached into the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom were virtually indistinguishable at this point, Because why? Well, there's some marital affiliation here, right? You can, this is the reason why the naming conventions are so hard to figure out. Because I I honestly think this is not just an accident or incidental, or it's merely that the biblical author is just reporting the details to you. I think he's also trying to make it plain how confusing it is because you can't tell the north from the south. And that's the point. The north is notoriously idolatrous. They're not the legitimate kingdom. God did set them up, but he set them up as a judgment against the south. Remember, the southern kingdom is Judah and Benjamin, and they have Jerusalem. They have the temple. They, are, they have the line of David. They are considered to be the legitimate kingdom. But they were beginning to dabble in idolatry and so on, and this happened a little bit in David, much more in Solomon, and then finally in Rehoboam, everything is divided. And so there, the north is set up as a judgment against the south. Well, at some point, the north and the south, they, ch- they try to kind of get back together and sort of repair their, their broken fences. God doesn't want them to repair their broken fences. They're supposed to be divided. The north is notoriously idolatrous, and the south kind of has gone along with them because they've seen them as sort of their, I guess, their brother, their kin, and we need to, you know, mend these fences. So Ahaziah was a great... Ahaziah, who is on the throne in Judah, in the southern kingdom, remember? You can look back and just make handy reference here, back to your page 5 of your, your handout here. You've got Ahaziah, who is the son—not Ahaziah on the left, but Ahaziah on the right. He's the son of Jehoram, the king of Judah, and the marital partnership with Ahab's daughter Athaliah. Right. So Ahaziah here is uh, is the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel. His mother is Athaliah, who was their daughter. Okay. So that's part of the reason. Why Judah and Israel have this sort of interconnectedness? Well, because they, are, they show up at each other's family reunions, right? There's, there's some kinship there. Okay, um, does that make sense? Everybody so far keeping the names straight? All right. Um, so then Ahaziah, so, so here, here's basically what happens, is they, they, um, Ahaziah decides to go on a military campaign, to um, Ramoth-Gilead. And because the two are are so connected, um, Ahaziah, or sorry, Joram of Israel goes to Ramoth-Gilead, and because the two are so interconnected, Ahaziah of Judah decides to join him and go with him to Ramoth-Gilead. And obviously the king here is in battle. He's not just staying on the back lines. He's up there in some sort of a fighting position or at some point the troops of Ramoth-Gilead break the ranks, I guess, or break the lines, get through and actually injure the king, King Joram of the north. Well, King Joram is injured, and so he retires all the way back to Jezreel to recover. And I'm going to show you a map in just a second so you can get your geography square as well. But the point being, the northern king Joram ventures out to Ramoth-Gilead, His nephew Ahaziah joins him on the battlefield with the southern kingdom. They're there together. Joram of the north is injured. He retires back to his castle at Ramoth-Gilead, and Ahaziah joins him there as well, which turns out for Ahaziah to be the wrong place at the wrong time, right? This is actually a fortuitous event that the Lord has worked out, no doubt. Okay. So he's going back, and they're they're both back at Jezreel. Let's look at a map real quick, just to see what that looks like. So uh, I'm going to bring up my little pointer here. If y'all can, y'all are on the computer, you're on your own, maybe. Well, no, maybe I I got a little mouse here, okay. Um, All right, we've got Ramoth-Gilead is right here, okay, out here on the the, uh, eastern side. So it's east of the Jordan River. The Jordan River is that big river that runs right down the middle. Ramoth Gilead is right here, and this is where they're fighting. They retire all the way back to Jezreel, which is right here. Some I did the math today, some thirty or five miles or so. It, it looks really long on the map. It's it's really not. This whole thing is like the size of the state of New Jersey, so it's not that big. All right, um, but so they're back here in Jezreel. So they uh, uh, Joram gets injured. King of the north gets injured. He goes back to Jezreel. Ahaziah, goes back with him to Jezreel. Alright, now, here's where the story picks up in in chapter 9, where, uh, while all of this is taking place, Elisha picks up the command from God, or the prophecy from God dating all the way back to 1 Kings 19 to Elijah, where he is now ready to anoint Jehu, as king over the northern kingdom. Jehu is the commander of the army, all right, of the north. Understand? Tracking with me so far? What happens, now Elisha is well-known, right? Elisha's well-known. What happens if this well-known prophet with an injured king back in, in Jezreel, the army has no clue What's going on with the king? Whether he's dead or alive, they've got no idea. What happens if a well-known prophet comes in with a jar of oil and wants to talk to Jehu, the commander of the army? What do you think? What do you think the military is going to think at that point? King's dead. They're anointing a new king. Jehu is the king. Elisha has outwitted them. He's too smart for that. Now, I'm assuming a lot of this, but it seems pretty plain. This is what's happening. He sends one of the sons of the prophets in his place, all right, to go in and secretly talk to Jehu. He wants to pull him aside and talk to him. And there he is going to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be the king over Israel, and he, tell, he tells him this. This is what you've got to do. Look at, in your verse packet, in 2 Kings 9, 1-16, Then Elisha, the prophet, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have uh, him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil. So this is going to be done in secret, right? Take the flask of oil and pour it over his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So you can see already in the text, he knows this is a tumultuous situation. And, it, and obviously the military is there and who knows what the opinions are in the military. So this has got to be done in secret and it's got to be done in haste. All right. So, verse 4 So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, um, I have, uh, Mr. Jehu, uh, <laughs> I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, uh, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, And like the house of Bashah, the son of Ahijah, and the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When when Jehu came out to the servants of the master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That's not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead, against Hazael, king of Syria, but King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Okay, so Elisha sends this young uh, youth intern to go anoint Jehu king, and it's very obvious that he does it. He does it both in secret, he does it in haste, because the military is there, they have no idea. This is an insurrection. It's a military coup that's happening here. And so it has to be handled with care, right? They have to do this in a certain fashion or it's going to get out of hand. And so what does Jehu do? He goes in, and he's anointed by this guy, and it's obvious when he comes out, he has not really much to, he doesn't know how, what to make of it. He's just been anointed king over Israel. And so they ask, what did the mad guy say to you? Because that's probably how they're thinking about the prophets anyway. They're, they're probably, well, we're going to see later on, they're, they're, it's not as though they're God followers exactly. And, uh, and so for them, the language of the prophets is a strange, they're a strange lot. And so what did he say to you? And Jehu says, eh, you know how those, those crazy guys are. And they're like, no, 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 no. He said something to you, and your head is wet with oil. They didn't really say that, but obviously he's probably got oil dripping from his head. So there's got to be something uh, there to that. And so they make him tell him. Well, what happens? As soon as he tells them, the commanders that are right there with him Blow the trumpet. Can you blow a trumpet in secret? (laughs) Of course not. Who's around that's going to hear the blowing of the trumpet? The whole military. When they shout, Jehu is king, who's going to hear it? The military. They're at Ramoth Gilead on a military campaign. So they are most likely, under the assumption, maybe, that the king is dead. But there might be some enterprising young soldier... Who wants to rise up the ranks that might decide, is the king dead? We haven't heard word that the king is dead. Maybe I should just take off on my horse and go find out in Jezreel, is the king dead? And if not, maybe I should report, Jehu has assumed your throne. Maybe that will give me some reward, right? So what does Jehu do instinctively as the commander of the armies? Set up a perimeter and ensure that no one leaves this place and makes it back to Jezreel. Right, a very shrewd move. Right, this is a this is a smart move, and so he takes uh, a, a small little, what do you want to call it, a platoon, small little battalion, uh, back to Jezreel, where he's going to do some damage to fulfill this prophecy. Okay, we good? Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a secret and a hurried anointing that takes place, and Jehu obviously seems very reluctant. Uh, but these men swear their allegiance to him, and, uh, and, and they're ready to serve him. So they're ready to set up the perimeter and make sure no one makes it back to Jezreel to tell the king uh, what has, has happened. And so, what does Jehu do? That secret and hurried anointing. You got it? Um, what does Jehu do? But he returns, he, he leaves the field uh, of, of Ramoth-Gilead, Um, to the rest of the soldiers, and he returns to Jezreel as quickly as possible, and he knows that the king is recuperating there. Uh, Obviously, he wants to set up a perimeter in case one of these young, enterprising young men or so might want to go and spoil the surprise. His agenda, and it becomes very obvious in a minute, is that he is going to catch the king by surprise. He wants to be the one to talk to the king so that the king has no idea that he's coming. Imagine if you're taking a small platoon into a very guarded, I don't know what it is, a fortress of some sort. There's obviously a wall there in the city of Jezreel. And so you're going back and you're taking a small little battalion that you can trust, of men that you can trust going with you uh, to overthrow and assassinate the king. You can't just walk into the walls of the, of the, of the palace and not and walk out, right? So you've got to do it a little bit different way, which is what Jehu is going to do. So, Ahab's house is to be. Oh, let's go back. There's a map here. Just, just this is the same map. Just to remind you, uh, Ramoth Gilead. He's riding all the way back here, about 30 miles or so back to the town. I want to bring that map up every time we get to a new little place. So there we go. Um, So just as a reminder, Ahab's house is to be destroyed, and in particular Jezebel. Remember, Ahab is dead. Uh, one of his sons is already dead. Uh, another of his sons is on the throne but is injured. It seems like we're not quite sure, but it seems like he doesn't have much more left as far as his, his throne goes. And, but Jezebel, his wife, is still alive. All right, Old lady that she is, she is still ticking All right, and still causing trouble. She also happens to be in Jezreel. Rem- do you remember that name, Jezreel, at all? Does that name sound familiar to you? It will in a minute, all right? Jezreel is very important. It goes all the way back to 1 Kings. It actually goes all the way back to this prophecy and plays a huge role in the reason why Ahab's being overthrown. It is quite ironic that they end up in Jezreel. Not ironic, it's providence that they end up in Jezreel. Okay, and we'll explain that in just a minute as to why they're there. But Jezebel has to be taken out, okay? We know that for sure, and we see that in verse 17 to 21. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as they came and said, I see the company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went out to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu says, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported saying, "The messenger reached them, but he's not coming back." Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, "Thus says the king, Thus the king has said, "Is it peace?" And Jehu answered, "What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me." Again the watchman reported, "He reached them, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, uh, for he drives furiously. He's a Texan, obviously. Um, Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of, who is that? Naboth the Jezreelite. Who is that guy? Do you remember this guy? Oh, he's very important. He had a vineyard. Next to Ahab's palace, Ahab or it was a piece of land anyway, and Ahab wanted this land, and he asked, he asked him for it, and he said, Naboth, can I have your land? I'll buy it. I'll buy you another piece of land and give it to you. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. And Naboth said, Well, no, this is in my family. You can't have this land. And so Ahab went back, and he was, he was moping. And Jezebel said to him, why are you moping? And he said, well, I I can't have his land. He said, no. And she said, what? You're the king. Just take it. Kill him. So she arranges this kangaroo court that accuses him of uh, false, makes false accusations, and they put him to death. So Ahab takes the vineyard. This is the reason Ahab's line is being overthrown. They happen to be standing in the courtyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Oh, the irony and providence of the Lord. Uh, How he brings these things about in such uh, delicious fashion. Okay, um, so, where am I at? All right, so, uh, let me get here. Uh, So, Joram, obviously, is. they send out these these messengers. There's somebody riding in. Now, remember, they got an army in Ramoth-Gilead. Now, what are the odds that when they leave, they say, send us a report on what happens, keep us abreast of the situation? All right, of course they do. That's what you're going to do. Well, they're back in Jezreel, tending to the king, trying to make him better, and on the horizon, here comes a small little troop of, of military people, it seems. Uh, and so they're coming, this, they're coming this way, and the watchman on the wall sees him, and he tells the king, and he says, well, send a messenger out there and ask him what's going on. So the messenger rides out there to meet him, and the messenger just stays with Jehu. <laughs> then they're like, well, he didn't come back, so they send another one out there, and the messenger just stays again with Jehu. And they're like, I'm, you know what? I'm sure that's Jehu because he drives like a crazy man, just like Jehu drives his chariot. And so I'm pretty sure that is Jehu, lest my eyes deceive me. And so what does that do then? The king says, well, I'll just go out to meet him. He's the commander of my army. Right? What do you you think Jehu's plan was in this whole deal? Think it might have been to lure the king out of his castle? Now, he happens to have Ahaziah with him, which is just even more irony. But he's got Ahaziah with him, so he brings him out, and they're standing there together in the area of uh, uh, Naboth, the Jezreelite. And so what happens? uh, Joram is going to be made aware of Jehu's plot. I want to read it because it is, uh, I'm just going to go out there on a limb and call it hilarious how this whole thing transpires. Uh, At least I read it that way, but it's It's probably a sadistic sense of humor that I have whenever I read this, but remember, these people are wicked, wicked people, and the Lord has condemned them to death. So just keep that in mind when I when and give me a little bit of grace here. But he says in nine twenty two to twenty six, and when uh, Joram saw Jehu, he said, "Is it peace, Jehu?" He answered. What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? (laughs) So it's at this moment in verse twenty-three that Joram realizes why the scouts didn't come back. (laughs) All right, (laughs) and Joram rained about, so he turns around and fled, saying to his nephew Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! (laughs) He's telling him, "Uh Uh-oh! Run for your life! (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) And Jehu... Oh, man, I'm so bad. Uh, (laughs) Jehu drew his bow, and with his full strength, shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. Where is Ahab's dynasty destroyed? Right there in the middle of the plot that he stole. I mean, how much more irony can you get than that? Um, For remember, when you and I rode side by side, uh, behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Man, that is, yeah. Yeah. And just as a reminder, it's back in 1 Kings 21, 19, And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, Shall dogs lick your own blood. A lot of dogs licking blood in this whole scene, and you are going to see more of it. It's not over. So, what we see here is that, yes, this is actually an example his uh, of divine retribution. The Lord is repaying him an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I mean down to the letter, down to the square foot of grass that it happened on, he's being repaid. His, his son, at least his, his wife is, is going to be as well. Um, so... Uh, now what do we have? We have what? what did, it, did I just read twenty-two to twenty-six? Yeah, I did. Um, so uh, where am I? At? Yeah, twenty-seven. All right. So what happens then to Ahaziah? So so Joram is dead, and remember, Ahaziah is linked in both marriage and religion to this family. He's there, not against his own will, Ahaziah of Judah is there because he agrees with Ahab's family. He is there because he is an idolater along with the rest of them. He is, no doubt, and, and this I titled this section Wrong Place at the Wrong Time. It could be Right Place at the Right Time, too. <laughs> right? Depending on whose perspective you look at this from. right? Um, so, anyway... He, he's there at the maybe wrong place at the wrong time or right place at the right time, but he is joined with them and he is going to suffer their fate. What's, what's fantastic or just amazing about this prophecy that he's going to take out all of Ahab's dynasty is that he doesn't even leave room for this son of Ahab's daughter to be left on the throne. Now, it gets a little dicey because that son of Ahab's daughter is also the son of David, right? So, he, he's going to be taken off the throne because none of Ahab's family will survive, but his son is going to assume the throne because he is also David's son, right? But, it turns out what we're going to find out next time is that his son is actually pretty young. So, he doesn't know anything that's going on right now, alright? So, that's, that's kind of helpful. Um, all right, look at 9:27 to 28. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also! And they shot him in his chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is in Iblem. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in the tomb, of his, uh, in the tomb with his father's in the city of David. Okay, so um, really judgment at this point exceeds expectations. This is going all throughout Ahab's family, even to his grandkids. Um, So let's look at the map just yet again here. Um, So we've got uh, Jezreel, and you've got right there is Megiddo. And somewhere in this area is Ibleem and all those things that he mentions, but it's right here in Jezreel, so it's not that far. I think it's 10 miles, we're looking at about, so not far. He's shot somewhere in here, and it looks like this little blue track is the best guess here. He's shot in this somewhere in here, and he just sort of finishes out the ride before he finally gives up the ghost uh, and is killed and then is taken and buried with his fathers. Now, now we get to Jezebel. Jezebel is the most wicked person that's probably ever been outside of Satan in the Bible, all right? And she's, and proof of that is she's brought up in Revelation, all right? She is the quintessential uh, wicked woman, and her death does not disappoint. Oh man, is it epic, all right? You can just picture this scene happen, happening. By the point of of time, where Jehu has killed the king, he's been anointed king, he's killed both kings actually, and and trumpets have blown, oil's been poured overhead, she's in Jezreel too, and she gets wind of this, and she's, she's knowing what's happening. So, how does the captain go down? <laughs> <laughs> with the ship, and dressed in full fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So Jehu, look at, look at thirty. Uh, 9, 2 Kings 9, uh, 30 uh, to 31. He goes in search for Jezebel. He discovers her sitting in a window, and she's fully dressed. Listen to this, nine thirty to 31. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And Jehu entered the gate, and she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Now, Zimri is one of those characters that could fall by the wayside in your mind. Um, This is why cross-references in your Bible are really handy. You'll probably get a cross-reference in Zimri and her statement there, all the way back to 1 Kings 16, I believe it is, where Zimri was also another commander of the armies of the north who overthrew his king, Bashar, and killed him and took over the throne. So she is, there, there, there was some question as to whether, what, what is she trying to do here? Some people thought she is trying to seduce him. And so she's kind of dressed up. Remember, she is a cult prostitute, Jezebel is. She's a prophetess of Baal. So she is a cult prostitute, and she is, has adorned herself. And some people think she's trying to seduce Jehu, but no, no, no. Her reference here makes it clear she knows what's happening. Uh, He has overthrown the kings. He is coming for her. She is adorned. She's going to go out in style when she goes out, is how she's going to go out, right? And um, (laughs) Jehu, maybe you would say the Lord, deprives her of going out in style. So how does it all happen? Obviously, he's looking for, look at verse 32 to 37. (laughs) Sorry, this is me being really terrible again. <laughs> Jay, he lifted up his face, Jehu lifts up his face to the window and he says, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. <laughs> so they threw her down. <laughs> and so, my wife was, this is where the part where she was like, "Oh," <laughs> Some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and they. You know, obviously they get spooked, they trampled her. And he, then he went in and ate and drank. <laughs> and, and he said, So now to this cursed woman, uh, uh, see, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by, the, by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. I'm not going to give her the dignity of even having a grave. I'm going to ensure that she, she becomes, not to put too fine a point on it, fecal matter as she is of the dogs. So he goes and looks for Jezebel and he finds two eunuchs who are in league with him. And I take it Jezebel is caught off guard by this. She thinks, Je- thinks Jehu is probably going to ascend the tower of some sort and come up there and try to kill her. Maybe she'll try to get away or something. I'm not sure. But uh, he just sort of <laughs> who in there is I just killed your king. <laughs> who in there has their allegiance with me? And the eunuchs are like, we do. <laughs> right here, right here, we'll do it. Uh, like, uh, you know, throw the, throw the lady down. So they just pitch her right out the window. She splatters on the ground and is dead on impact, we assume. Uh, do, do what? Yeah, uh, or maybe not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so... She is she is uh, dead. Jehu has killed her, and the prophecy of the Lord is fulfilled. Now, um, I, I, so I find I find humor in a lot of these in a lot of these biblical passages. You can, I'm it, when I read this, it's like you can see a movie playing out in front of your eyes. Right? I mean, this it, it is. You don't have to make it up. You can just do a story that's virtually word for word from the scriptures here, and you've got a, oh man, a blockbuster on your hands because it is, oh man, it's so rich. All right, but I, I think you're, you're supposed to enjoy it. I really do. And the reason is because it should, it is supposed to bring us joy when the wicked are judged, when wickedness is purged, that is both from our own hearts and from the world, it should bring us joy. The, t- the trouble sometimes that I, I have, and, and I, I face this, this issue as a parent, is that there's a temptation, I think, to soft-pedal the words of Scripture and to not just give them to our kids as they are. And just tell them what happened. Um, and, and I think that's not wise. Because this prophecy goes all the way back to 1 Kings 19. And it actually tells us a great deal about the Lord, about how he works, about his quest for holiness, <coughs> about his desire to reach his people about so much. Let's start back at the beginning. This prophecy was years in the making. This has been going on for a long time. He tells tells them that Ahab is going to face this, and he delays Ahab's punishment because there is a brief stint of Ahab's repentance. But... He, so he stays his hand of justice, but he's going to bring it down on his house. And he waits until Elisha is well into his ministry before ever delivering on his promise. There's got to be a point at which Jehu, who obviously had heard the prophecy of the Lord and knew what was supposed to come to Ahab's house, there has to be a point even when he might have began to doubt that the Lord was actually going to do this thing that he said. Well, how long is he going to wait before he brings down the house? Of, there won't be anything left of the house of Ahab at all. Ahaziah, Ahab's oldest son, falls through latticework, and he's dead within a couple years, and, and you got to think, well, maybe that's the end of it. No. Joram, his son, takes the throne. Well, is the Lord true to his word, or is he not? And you find out not only is he true, he's been watching that patch of grass the whole time. He knows exactly where the area of Naboth the Jezreelite's vineyard is, where his plot of land is, and he's going to ensure that Ahab's house comes crashing down right on it. That's incredible. That's pinpoint precision of the fulfillment of the Lord's Word. Well, for us, the Christian, we're sitting here, we're waiting on the Lord's Word too. I mean, we're still waiting on, the, on Christ to return. Well, isn't that part of what the Old Testament tells us? Is that he's always been true to his word? The Old Testament is filled with God making promises. Sometimes he cuts those promises short and just keeps them right there in the Old Testament, and other times he waits all the way until the New Testament where he keeps the promises. But then in the New Testament we've got some promises too, and our job as we search the Old Testament and as we read the New Testament is to be assured, yes, He does keep His promises. Because in this season that we're at, it's difficult to trust that the Lord is going to keep His promises. It's, it, and, and that varies from person to person. It might have been COVID for you, or it might be health issues, or it might be financial issues, marital trouble. It might be a whole host of things that come about all along throughout your life, but there's points where you go through crises of faith and you wonder, is the Lord true to His Word? I might be getting ready to meet Him tomorrow. Am I trusting that I'm really going to open my eyes in judgment and I'm going to see Him? Well, that's what the Old Testament does for us. It teaches us. Here's all these promises. And I have been faithful to everyone. What would give you an ounce of doubt that I would fulfill the promises that I've still got outstanding. None. But it also tells us a great deal about the Lord's quest for his holiness and for his name to be upheld. When we soft-pedal the judgments that happen, whether it be the flood, oh, look at the animals and Noah and the cute little boat and all of this, Oh, and the whole world dying in a flood. When we soft-pedal all that, remember these judgments that take place, whether they be Jezebel or the flood or a host of other judgments that take place throughout the Old Testament. When we soft-pedal those and we, just, we don't give them to our children or to the people in our congregations maybe or into our Sunday school classes or whatever, when we, when we soft-pedal those, remember those are just a shadow of the judgment that's to come. What are they left thinking about hell? Look, hell is worse than what happened to Jezebel. Her judgment did not stop when she hit the ground. She opened her eyes in judgment. And at that point, she realized, yeah, but it's too late. So what happens when we soft-pedal the judgment that God gives even in the Old Testament? But you see, if you pay close attention in this whole drama that's unfolded from all the way back to 1 Kings 17, really, when Elijah was on the Mount uh, Mount Carmel. It goes all the way back to there. If you pay really close attention, there's a part where Ahab figures this whole thing out and repents. Ahab, who's wicked, and what does the Lord do? He says, well, I'm I'm still going to judge your house, but I'll wait. So when you soft-pedal the judgment, you have nothing left but to soft-pedal the mercy of the Lord on the other side too. But then, if you soft-pedal the judgment and you soft-pedal hell, well then, what are you left to do with the cross? You have to soft-pedal Jesus too. Because hell, the judgment that God enacts on the the whole world at times makes the cross of Christ all the more merciful. Jezebel's going to happen to you. You think Jezebel was bad? You think Ahab's death was awful? Dogs eat him up? Only your palms are left. You think that's bad? Hell waits for you. But then how does What does the cross of Christ actually look like then? But the most merciful thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity. God became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. And oh yeah, he lived a perfect life and died in your place so that you wouldn't have to face all of that. Don't soft pedal it. Deal with it. Rejoice over the fact that he's true to his word and he killed her. But then follow through and go, how am I that much different than Jezebel? Really? I'm not. He killed his own son instead of me. Questions? Go ahead, James. <laughs> no, no, nope. you're not going to go down with dignity. You're not going to meet your maker with makeup on. You're going to meet him as fecal matter, basically. Yeah, she she is thinking she's still in control. That's exactly right. That's a good way of of putting it. You know, I, I just have that image of her realizing the slow music is playing, the end of the drama is coming near, she's putting on her makeup and that sort of, Ironic kind of fashion, you know. You've seen this in movies happen. You know, she—the villain—is going to die with dignity and putting on all the regalia and everything like that, and fall on the sword. No, she's going to be pushed out a window. Any <laughs> mm-hmm. questions? Yep, Kirsten. Yeah, I love this question. I love this question. Um, the question was for people um, to the thousands watching around the world. Um, that, that uh, how so you've got a, a you know com- a common good person uh, that's sort of just like not a Christian, but just you know your your everyday average citizen who's not at all like Jezebel in terms of wickedness and things like that. And they would say about themselves, well, I'm not at all like Jezebel. How do I deserve that? So, so the, what, what is important for us as Christians is to help people understand what offense really is. Offense, not a fence, but offense really is. Um, if I walked up to you, best best illustration I've ever heard for this. This is, I'm borrowed, okay? If I walked up to you and I slapped you right now, what would happen? Well, you'd probably get really mad. You'd probably run out. Maybe some charges would be filed. I don't know. Maybe something would transpire from that, but it, it probably wouldn't be super severe. All right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Drew would shoot me, of course, but, but, that, but that's probably what would happen. All right? What would happen if I walked up to the President of the United States and just smacked him? Without a trial, I'd be (laughs) guantanamo I would be disappeared. I would be (laughs) patriot-acted. Out of here, I would be on the ground before I ever, probably before I ever made contact, but let's assume I made contact. Well, is the difference the action? It's not slap one person and slap another. It's who is it directed. At. So now imagine that you have an infinitely holy God of the universe that you sin against. You sin against me. we're going to have a discussion. We're going to talk about it. You sin against an infinitely holy God of the universe. That's an offense infinitely greater. So an offense of infinite greatness, what does it deserve? Infinite retribution. Okay. Right. So step one is helping them understand the grade of offense that we're talking about. Step two is helping them see that they have offended God. All right? So let's just let's start with the Ten Commandments. Let's just start there. All right? Uh, do you, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever? You go down the list, and any truth-telling person is going to say, "I've done all of them." So you're a liar. You're and when we get to adultery, I mean, Jesus kind of u- updates that to say, you "Just lusted after someone." You ever done that? Okay, you're a liar. You're an adulterer. You're a go. You go down the list. So, if God says these are offenses to me, and you've committed them. Well, you slapped him in his face. So all of us at some point are going to meet the judgment of Jezebel. Are all of us going to meet the meet it in the way that Jezebel met it? Well, no. That's where I can agree with you. I, I can agree to an extent. God doesn't is not seeking you out to throw you down from a window so that you die and be licked up by dogs. That was a punishment reserved for Jezebel and some people in her family. Why? because of particular offenses that were so heinous, for leading his people astray. All right, but we can agree that the offense is still there. So Jesus is saying, you must be perfect, even as your Father is perfect. Well, where does that leave you? I mean, unless you're going to stand here and claim perfection, which is a whole another discussion. Then we can talk. But the this this all of this changes. All of this changes completely if Jesus never came, if he never died, if he never rose again. Right? But at the moment that we think that Jesus was an actual historical figure, now everything changes. Everything changes. We can talk about the Quran, we can talk about um, Jewish belief and no Messiah. We can talk about um, Buddhist belief and Hindu belief. We can talk about all of those if Jesus never came. But wait a minute. We're saying God actually made contact with us in a person. And this is what he said about himself. Did it happen or did it not? If he didn't raise from the dead, I'm still in my sins and who cares? But if he did, it all comes down to the resurrection. If he did, then we need to investigate the rest of his claims. And if we do that, then we'll see, no, your offense is pretty great. It's, it's all, st- it's steps, right? So all I'm looking to do is get concessions. Can you concede this? And if they concede that, let's go to the next step. Do you concede this? All right, we're halfway to the gospel now. You know, it sounds easy. It's not quite that easy in conversation. Right. You also have to understand there's so much of this that is the Holy Spirit, right? Prayer, there is a heart that has to be responsive and soft. There is uh, hard-headedness, hard-heartedness on the other side of that conversation that could happen. So hard-hearted, they're not going to hear a word you have to say. They're not going to make one concession. They're not going to make one point. And in which case, just... Yeah, pride, just, just, you just pray, just pray, and maybe something will change. An illness, a, them coming into confrontation with their own mortality, you'd be amazed at what people will do when they realize they're going to die. At that point, they're like, wait a minute, how sure am I that there's really nothing on the other side of this cancer? which is what we're going to do now, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its testimony. We thank you for the resilience of your, um, your word and your providence to fulfill your word. Um, the attention to detail that you have paid in each and every scenario to reassure us, your people even, That you are true to your word. And I pray that we can go out with confidence. Perhaps we can even think of people in our own lives that we can pray for. That who knows might come to know the Lord. We pray that you would do this in and through us. We pray that you would move in people in this city. Use us to speak to them maybe or or maybe other people to speak to them, but we pray that you would move in the hearts of people in this city and that we would see in Tuscaloosa an awakening like we've never seen before. We know you can do that. That's not too much to ask for of you. We know you've done it before. We know you continue to do it, and we pray that you would do it even now. In Jesus' name.